And before we begin, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We're amazed at your mercies and your grace. How quick you are to forgive. How lavish you are with your grace. And Lord, we've heard tonight of the wonderful work that's going on there uh, in France. We pray that you'll continue to bless Frank and Lynette and all that they're doing for your kingdom and for these people. We pray, Lord, that you'll do a great work there. Lord, we know that you're working all over the world. Even in Muslim countries, Lord, you're doing great things. Uh, The gospel is going out. Lord, we pray for the brave men and women who who literally risk their lives to share the gospel uh, day in and day out. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us to share the good news of Jesus with the people around us. Lord, especially this Christmas season where hearts are primed and when minds are open. Lord, I pray you'll encourage us tonight. Once again, Lord, as we study your word, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So we trust that you'll speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You know, every time that I journey to Israel, I like to visit a site that I've never seen before. This year, it was Shiloh. You know, God was worshipped at the tabernacle in Shiloh for 369 years. This was where Eli the priest raised the young boy Samuel. Today, Shiloh is in the West Bank under Palestinian control. Israelis consider it it hostile territory. In fact, our tour company agreed to go to Shiloh, but only in an armored bus, just in case we were greeted by some flying rocks. Shiloh is a few miles south of Sychar, or the biblical name Shechem, which is today a major Palestinian city called Nablus. The Bible calls the whole region Samaria. And Samaria was as difficult a destination in Jesus' day as it is today. The terrain was very hilly and mountainous. There were hostilities then, just as there are now. Not with Palestinians, but with the rival Samaritans. I'm surprised Jesus and his disciples didn't take an armored bus. The preferred path from the Galilee to Jerusalem was further west, down the Jordan Valley, not through the rocky region of Samaria. A pilgrim would travel through Samaria only if there was a pressing need to do so, and that's what brings us to chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Notice notice that imperative. He needed to go through Samaria. Apparently, Jesus obeyed an inner urge, a mental must. For some reason, he knew the Father wanted him to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Shechem, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Even in Jesus' day, there was some history associated with this site. It was probably already a tour stop. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or high noon. Samaria was steep terrain, and Jesus had been hoofing it all morning. I mean, his dogs were tired. 
And so he kicks off his sandals to give his feet some rest. And he sends his disciples to the nearby village for coffee and bagels. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now today, there's friction between Jews and the local Palestinians. But a similar animosity existed in Jesus' day between Jews and Samaritans. You see, when Samaria was conquered by the Assyrians seven centuries earlier, the Assyrians bred foreigners with these surviving Israelis. The Jews in Jerusalem viewed the Samaritans as mongrels, as half-breeds, as a completely different sect. In fact, the Samaritans had developed their own religion. They had instituted their own priesthood. They even had their own temple that stood on top of nearby Mount Gerizim. There was such hatred between Jews and Samaritans that the Jews, they they desired that no Samaritan would be involved in the resurrection. They, They just prayed that no Samaritan would rise in the resurrection. In fact, later in John chapter 8 verse 48, when they try to insult Jesus, the Pharisees say, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. So apparently they equated the two, having a demon with being a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans got along about as well as Jews and Palestinians do today. And yet Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. Now remember it was noon. Midday in Samaria in the summertime, temps can reach 90 degrees. Women came for the water only in the morning, in the cooler morning hours, never at noon. In fact, the only reason a woman would visit this well at noon is if she wanted to avoid other ladies. And apparently that was this woman's motivation. As we'll learn later, she had lived an immoral life. She was now frowned on and snubbed by her neighbors. She had very few friends in the community. She lived in shame and in isolation. And it was a shock to her for Jesus to even speak to her. I mean, a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman, they were on opposite ends of the first century social ladder. And not only were Jews biased against Samaritans, there was also a prejudice against women among the Jewish rabbis. Did you know that one rabbi taught, it is better the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman? Can you imagine? This is why she does a double take when Jesus... A Jewish rabbi asks her, give me a drink. Now, John notes his whereabouts at the time. He says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She understood the social dynamics at play. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Of course, living water is white water. It's water that swirls and flows. Living water is clear and clean. It's drinkable in contrast to stagnant, stale pond water. And living water is the term that Jesus coined for the life of the Spirit. When you choose Jesus, and when you're born from above, refreshment, living water, 
is the result. Movement begins to occur in the deepest part of you. Refreshment results. Living water is the spiritual equivalent of a cool drink on a hot day. A thirst gets slaked. An ah floods over the soul. Living water quenches that deep down thirst inside of human beings. It produces spiritual satisfaction. Jesus, he could have given her living water. And this is the water that Jesus offers this woman. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Did you know in 1935 it was, Jacob's well was actually dredged. After 138 feet, they hit bottom. The Samaritan woman was right. The well was deep. She asks him, Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Evidently, Jesus lacked a scooper. He didn't have a bucket. And she wonders how he's going to drink from this well. As in chapter 3 with Rabbi Nicodemus, Jesus is talking figuratively, but this woman understands him literally. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Now here's a verse that we need to write over every promise of satisfaction that this world might offer us. The new house. The luxury car. The latest gadget or gizmo. The fancy clothes. The new shoes. The gorgeous girl. Hey, you get it. And you'll thirst again. It might produce a bloated, full feeling for a time. But nothing permanent gets resolved. In days, maybe months, you'll thirst again. Hey, you finally get married. But you'll thirst again. Oh, you're finally pregnant. But you'll thirst again. You get that high-paying promotion. Oh, just wait. You'll thirst again. How often have you said, I'll be happy when? Then when that when comes and you're still thirsting all over again, you're scratching your head. When will we realize material stuff can never satisfy a spiritual need? Material stuff will never satisfy a spiritual need. You can't put a square peg into a round hole. Famous comedian Eddie Murphy fame and fortune at his beck and call. He once said to People magazine, I don't think there's anyone who feels like there isn't something missing in their life. Several years ago, Sting and the police, they had a hit song entitled, A Hole in My Life. Man, that could be the anthem for the entire human race. A hole in my life. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos, at the peak of his power, drew this conclusion. I am the president. I am the most powerful man in the Philippines. All I have dreamed of, I have, but I feel discontent. I understand. Jesus told us, you'll thirst again. And yet Jesus goes on to say, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. 
the spirit of the Christian becomes an artesian well, bubbling up with authentic joy and inner harmony and fervent love. Living water wells up from within every believer. You know, Jesus alone can quench our deep down thirst. You and I were made for God. The hole inside us is Jesus-shaped, and only He can fill our emptiness. Here's another name for living water Jesus uses. Everlasting life. It's not just long life when we say everlasting life. It's a quality of life. It's a full, rich, deep, abundant life. It speaks of quality, not just quantity. Jesus says, you can have everlasting life. And then in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now here's a breakthrough. This woman is beginning to understand what Jesus is offering her. Her spiritual eyes are beginning to open. In the words of the Sprite commercial, she's starting to obey her thirst. And so she says, give me this water. But there's a prerequisite that she needs to meet. And it's called repentance. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. (laughs) The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. Notice Jesus didn't consider her current live-in to be her husband. That's important. You know, just because a, a man and a woman shack up or cohabitate doesn't mean that they're married in God's eyes. Sometimes people will try to tell you that. Jesus said, no, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. God recognizes and honors only the bonds of marriage. Jesus wants to quench this woman's thirst. But first, she needs to deal with her sin. Understand, there is no conversion Without conviction. This woman had had more men in her lap than napkins. She had lax morals, low standards. You know, it's interesting that Jesus dealt with this self-righteous teacher, Nicodemus, over in chapter 3. He dealt with him the same way he deals with this unrighteous trollop here in chapter 4. Notice the remedy for self-righteousness and for unrighteousness is the same. It's living water. It's new birth. Both Nicodemus and this woman need a drink of living water. So do you. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) He tells her about her past history, her marital history. She's had five husbands and she says, Yeah, I bet you're a prophet. Starting to dawn on this woman that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. Verse 19, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now this often happens. Jesus puts his finger on her sin. And notice what she does. She starts to squirm. She changes topics. Let's just change the subject now. You're getting too close to some personal matters. In fact, the woman even gets spiritual. She gets theological. She brings up the controversy of her day. Jews worshipped on Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem, but Samaritans worship here on Mount Gerizim. Who's right? You know, when people want to avoid the truth, they often argue theology. 
Jesus addresses her question. He said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, there in Samaria, nor on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in neither place you'll worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now notice, Jesus settles the controversy. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews, not the Samaritans, were the custodians of the Scripture. They were the caretakers of the sacrificial system of worship. Jesus, in essence, is saying, there is a right way and a wrong way to worship. There has been up to this point in history, and the Jews have been right. But all that's about to become a mute point anyway, because change is coming. Verse 23, for the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, with the coming of the Messiah, change had come. Jesus was the temple of God. He was the dwelling place of God on earth. The presence of God manifested Himself in Jesus. And that made the temples, both on Mount Gerizim and on Mount Moriah, completely irrelevant. Today, God no longer dwells in temples made with stone, but He dwells in the hearts of those who believe. You know, a few weeks ago, I was at Jerusalem's Wailing Wall, where I saw devout Jews kiss the wall, pray toward the wall, reverence the wall. The stones there in that wall are the remnant of the former temple. It's a sacred site to the Jews. And yet, as I prayed at that Wailing Wall, The Holy Spirit spoke to me and reminded me, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Logistics no longer matter. True worship is now a matter of the heart. You see, Jesus said God is spirit. God lacks physical restraints. God has no material properties that might confine Him to a single location. God is everywhere at all times. And Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman to stop limiting God to a mountaintop or to a temple or even to a church for that matter. He's no longer found in brick and mortar, but God is found in spirit and truth. You see, the true God is understood biblically and experienced spiritually. He's found in spirit and in truth. No matter the location All you need to connect with God is an open Bible and an open heart. That's it. Real worship occurs by the Spirit and through God's Word. Verse 25 tells us, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Could he have been any clearer? Very clear, crystal clear. And at this point, his disciples walk up. They're back with the bagels. But they also bring their bigotry. For they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? By now his men were used to Jesus loving people, even unlovely people, even 
unexpected people, even people that other people rejected. His willingness to reach out to anyone had become legendary, and so they didn't say a word. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, remember, these were the people she was trying to to ignore and trying to avoid this very day. That's why she had come to the the well at noon. She said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. This is so fascinating. Exposure to the townspeople. That was the very thing she wanted to avoid. But now she seeks that exposure. She wants to communicate. Apparently shame no longer torments her. She has now turned from outcast to broadcast. (laughs) Jesus knew her sin, but he didn't condemn her. She's now trusting in his mercies. It seems... One slurp of living water gives a person an unexpected courage and boldness. One slurp. Once this woman senses God's forgiveness, she becomes oblivious to her past. She gets so caught up in the love of Jesus, all that matters is sharing Him. Verse 31 tells us, Now in the meantime, His disciples urged Him, saying, Rabbi, eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Has somebody beat us to it? Did somebody slip out and get to town earlier? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now again, Jesus is speaking figuratively. And yet his disciples interpret him literally. Jesus fed on the will of God. You know, usually when we think of soul food, what comes to mind? Turnip greens, black-eyed peas, collard greens, chicken gizzards, hog jowls. That's real soul food. Well, maybe it's not. For real soul food is to hear And do the will of God. Spiritual nourishment comes from obedience. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. To finish his work. Verse 35. Do you not say, there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. For they are already white for harvest. You see, the disciples of Jesus, they were delaying the harvest. In their mind, Samaria was a detour on their mission to the Jews. But Jesus loved even the Samaritans. He cared for this burned out woman who had loved and lost five times. She was part of this great soul harvest that Jesus saw. And this harvest continues. It continues today. Not among the self-righteous, but with folks like this woman, the unrighteous who know they've sinned, who who thirst deep inside and who long for satisfaction and long to start over and are willing to drink of the living water. Well, in verse 36, Jesus comments on this soul harvest and he gives us some principles that govern our participation. And he who reaps receives wages 
and gathers fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. You know, sometimes we sow seeds of truth. We plant thoughts in people's minds. At other times, we reap decisions and we help people commit. I take it that much of Lynette's work is sowing seeds. Just sowing the seeds for that future harvest. However, when we participate, however we participate in the harvest, whether we sow seeds or whether we actually reap the harvest, we will receive a reward. Jesus says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. This is probably a reference to John the Baptist who had already been out sowing the seed. Perhaps the Samaritan woman had been previously influenced by John. Verse 39 tells us, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who had testified, He told me all that I ever did. You know, a recent survey revealed that 85% of all Christians say they were converted by the influence of a close friend or family member. Not an evangelist on television, but by the witness of a friend. You know, the Samaritans could tell that this woman's life had been changed. And they believed her testimony about Jesus. Realize at this point in her life, this woman knows very little theology. She's still confused. In fact, she knows very little about the gospel, per se. But the people of the area were attracted by her enthusiasm. I always remember, one witness with enthusiasm is better than 99 persons with knowledge. It was enthusiasm that caught people's attention and caused them to listen to what she had to say about Jesus. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Jesus hung out to straighten out a lot of their confused theology. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They didn't just take the woman's word for it. They, after they had met Jesus, they, they were convinced that, yes, he was the Messiah, and they served him themselves. You know, and isn't that really all of our testimonies? We probably came to Jesus on the testimony of a friend, but once we met him, and once we came to know him, and once we discovered him and grew in our relationship with him, we too have become confident that he's everything they've said about him. Now, after the two days, he departed from there, And he went to Galilee. In other words, Jesus headed home. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You know, home is always hardest for Jesus. Whenever he went home, he was always always rebuffed or rejected. Home can be a tough place for some of us. Some of us are going home for the holidays and we're already a little anxious about it. A little fidgety about it. We're not sure that... That's a great place for us. You see, the problem is familiarity can breed contempt. Often the homeboys are the last to admit that something special has happened to one of their own. It's called pride. That's why so often you're rejected by your hometown just as Jesus was. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now Cana was about 20 miles from the lakeside city of Capernaum. Now when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. He wanted to get Jesus and take him physically from Cana, the 20 miles down to Capernaum, to heal his sick son. It never dawned on this man that all Jesus had to do was just speak the word. He could have spoken the word in Cana and his servant, his son back in Capernaum would have been healed. You see, time and distance meant very little to the eternal Son of God. That's what this man is going to learn. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. By this time, Jesus was getting frustrated with the people's lust for the miraculous. You know, the Jews, as we'll see later, were always clamoring for signs and miracles. They were more interested in a circus than in a Christ. But this nobleman, he was only interested in his sick son. And so the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Hurry, Jesus. Capernaum is a long walk from Cana. And I need you to come. My son is sick. Jesus said to him, Go your way, for your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he had gotten better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And he put it together in his mind, and that was the same time that Jesus had given the word. Now verse 53 concludes the story. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. You know, when Jesus turned the water to wine, he showed his power over time. You know, when the grapes ferment, they turn to wine. Jesus did it instantly. He was Lord over time. But now he heals a boy from a distance. He just speaks the word. Apparently he has power over space as well. Jesus is Lord over time and space. He is Lord over all the universe. He proved that in his first two miracles. And there were more to come. Chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now John doesn't tell us what feast this happened to be. But there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda means house of grace. Now the sheep gate was on the northeast wall of the city of Jerusalem. The area that is in reference here, the pools of Bethesda, consisted of five arches, but they also consisted of two pools a northern pool and a southern pool, and they had been built over a set of hot springs. These pools were surrounded by a colonnade, and they were the site of a public bath. But a 
spiritual phenomenon had changed these pools intended use. We're told in these five porches lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And they were all waiting for the moving of the water. And here's why. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. You know, when a chronically ill person was finally released by the doctors, when all that could be done had been done, where did this person go? To the pools of Bethesda. Pools built for Roman relaxation had become an infirmary for the hopeless. And there must have been some truth to this expectation. For healings had occurred. Why else would the pools have gained this reputation? Why else would so many of people have been gathered there? In fact, Jesus speaks of this not just as a legend, but as an actual occurrence. It was probably rare. But evidently, at times, the angel did present himself and did stir up the water and miracles occurred. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmary 38 years. Maybe he contracted polio at an early age. He had been crippled for a long, long time. In fact, he'd been crippled long enough to forget what it was like to chase his kids around the house or play on the church softball team. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Notice he he knew he'd been in that condition for a long time. It's one thing to suffer an infirmary, but when you suffer an infirmary for a long time, it creates additional problems. And so he asked this man, do you want to be made well? You can get so comfortable with it that, that you, sort of, you sort of lose the incentive, really, to change. You can get comfortable with an infirmary. Have you seen that? It just sort of becomes your status quo. And you become afraid of change. Even though you desire it, you're afraid of it. Have you seen that? And so Jesus asks him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Notice he doesn't answer the question Jesus asked him. Instead, he just makes excuses as to why he's not healed. Again, it's possible to get so used to your plague or your infirmary that you become reluctant to turn it loose. Think of the alcoholic, for example. He's destroying his life. He knows he's destroying his life. But the stronghold of his habit is greater than his desire to change. After 38 years, it's easy to just lie down and cave in and give up. You can capitulate to your situation, to your condition. You can give up the dream of a different kind of life. It happens. It's possible. It had happened to this man. And that's why Jesus challenges him. Do you want to be made well? The man by the pool blamed everyone else for beating him out of his miracle. 
He blamed others for his problem. But the real problem is that he had lost faith. He had given up hope. He wasn't trying anymore. He was waiting on the waters to be stirred. Jesus comes along and he stirs up this man's faith. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Here is a bedridden man who hasn't stood on his feet for 38 years. And yet Jesus tells him to get up and walk and he does so. Understand, all God's miracles begin with impossible commands. This is always God's way. He asks us to believe the unbelievable. And as soon as we do so, suddenly the power is unleashed to affect the change. In the milli-nanosecond, in the micro-millisecond, between the time that this man's faith prompted the nerve impulse from his brain to his legs, God supplied him the strength that he previously lacked. The lame man who needed help to crawl into the pool moments earlier puts his faith in Jesus and suddenly he's able to walk and dance and run all the way home. It's also interesting that there were scores of sick people scattered around the pool that day. I'm always reminded of that fact. But Jesus didn't heal them all. He healed only this one man. And, and that brings a great question, why? And the answer is, we don't know. We wish we did, but we don't. You see, when it comes to healing, th- this is a matter that brings us face to face with God's sovereignty. God heals one person, the next person dies. What's with that? The bottom line is, is that healing is God's prerogative. He decides. And we have no right to question his purposes. Now notice the last line of verse 9. It's the key line here. And that day was the Sabbath. (laughs) Jesus had six days to heal people. But notice he always heals people on the Sabbath. He always heals people on the Shabbat. He stirs up controversy. In verse 8, when Jesus tells the lame man, take up your bed and walk, he uses an interesting Greek word for walk. It literally means to walk around, to just take a stroll, to be seen, man. That's what he tells him to do. I want you to get out and I want you to show off what I've done for you and what day I've done it. Get out and show off your new wheels, Jesus is saying. He wants everybody to see the miracle and to note that it was done on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. Now verse 10 lets us know that Jesus got the attention he desired. For the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now according to the Talmud, Jewish law, 39 tasks were prohibited on the Sabbath day and carrying a burden was number 39. Carrying a burden, what does that mean? Well, they had a whole list of things that that would describe what what constituted a burden. 
You couldn't put your false teeth in on the Sabbath day. That would be carrying a burden. You couldn't strap on your false leg, your wooden leg on the Sabbath day. That would be carrying a burden. They had a whole list of things. You see, here's religion. Here's Judaism for you. A miracle happens, but the miracle gets ignored while the guy who's healed is picked on for carrying the pad that he was lying on. That's religion. Legalism is not only silly, it's sad. In a person's zeal to keep the rules, so often he can become totally irrational, even contradictory. The legalist often finds himself keeping a rule in conflict with the rule's real intention. Once I was leaving the church late one night, and I was really hungry, and I stopped by Domino's in Snellville for pizza. It was about 11 o'clock. I tried to order the pizza, but I was told that they stopped taking walk-in orders at 10. That I'd have to go home and place my order over the phone. Now, I figured it would be safer and it would be easier for them if I called in my order on my cell phone from the parking lot. But when I suggested that, the guy said, no, I can't do that. Evidently, the manager that night was a stickler for the rules. Only home deliveries after 10 o'clock. And so here's what happened that night. I called in my order from the parking lot, and the delivery man followed me all the way home and handed me my pizza on the doorstep of my house in order to keep the rules. It was crazy. It was ludicrous. But this was the kind of narrow-minded insanity that the Sabbath regulations produced. I mean, a miracle takes place, and they're worried about the guy picking up his pad. Now, the Jews questioned this formerly lame man, and they said, they, and, and he answered them and said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Notice this. Jesus returns to finish what he started in this man's life. You know, sadly, I could take you on a tour of my house and my garage, and I could show you all of the projects that I've started and have failed to complete. But not Jesus. What he starts in us, he finishes. Jesus didn't heal these lame legs so they could return to sin. His healing was only part of his cleansing. Jesus tells this man, sin no more. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus was determined to to make the point that they were more concerned with ritual than with people. They were more concerned with ceremony than with people's needs than with the heart of people and the 
healing and love and salvation of people. This is religion for you. This is why I hate religion. Give me Jesus. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. You know, since the Father works on the Sabbath, so should the Son, don't you think? In a family business, if it's open on Saturday, the whole family works, okay? That's what Jesus is saying here. When God created the heavens and the earth, He did so in six days. And on the seventh day, He rested. But man's sin broke the Father's Sabbath rest. And ever since then, He has been working to redeem and restore fallen man. In healing on the Sabbath day, Jesus was simply following His Father's lead. It's family business. The Father's been working, and so I'm working with Him. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Because he, did, he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Remember this. This is so important. Remember the Jewish mindset. We've talked about this before. The son of an animal is a animal. The son of a human is a human. The son of God is God, you got it. That's how the Jews saw things. And so for Jesus to call himself, you know, to say that God was his father, to say that he was God's son, was in essence claiming deity for himself. He too was claiming to be God. And the Jews certainly understood that. And for that reason, they tried to kill him. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. In other words, Jesus was not a lone operative. He was taking orders from God. He always did the Father's will. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You know, the strongest proof of the deity of Jesus is his mastery over death. The Son holds the keys to eternal life. You know, the Jewish rabbis said that Yahweh held three great keys. The keys to open the heavens and give rain. The key to open the womb and give conception. And the key to open the grave. And raise the dead. Three times in Jesus' ministry, he raises the dead. He proved that he was sovereign over life and death, and ultimately, even his own life and death. Verse 22 For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This too was a claim to deity. You know, in Genesis 18, verse 25, Yahweh is called judge of all the earth. Jesus' authority to judge was essentially a claim of equality with God. Verse 23 is a stronger statement still. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Father shares His glory and His honor with the Son. 
So to disrespect one is to disrespect the other. How often do you hear someone claim to follow God but reject Jesus? Jesus says that's impossible. If you you reject the Son, you're also rejecting the Father. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You know, the world we live in is a walking graveyard. It's full of breathing corpses. People are alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. And it's only when you come to Jesus that you connect with God, and that you pass from death into life. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Daniel 7 verse 13, Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that He is the Messiah. He is the one who has life. Jesus is the only authorized dealer of life. Know that. God created life. And the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge human beings and determine who is to receive eternal life. In verse 28, Jesus says only what God could say. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Today, human beings live, they die, but they still exist as disembodied spirits. But one day, our decomposed bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our spirits. And all who have ever lived will rise at the command of Jesus and be assigned their eternal destination. They'll be resurrected either to heaven or to hell. But, but what about my grandmother? You know, we, we cremated her and then we scattered her Ashes over uh, Walmart, parking lot. That's where she liked to go. What about Grandma? Hey, don't you think that if Jesus can raise a dead corpse, He can collect those ashes and bring them back together and resurrect that body nonetheless? I believe He can. One day, every person who's died will be resurrected and be assigned their destination, either heaven or hell. Now, verse 30 I can't of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Here's the humility of Jesus. Jesus had humbled himself. He lived in subjugation to his Father and to his Father's will. Every thought, every act, every instinct was perfectly synced with the will of God. This is how we should live. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. 
Now, Jesus is here appealing to Jewish law. For in a Jewish court, a single testimony was inadmissible. It took two or three witnesses to validate a claim. This is why for the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus is going to place five different witnesses on the stand, so to speak, to confirm that he indeed is God. And his first witness he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. He says, there is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John had testified of Jesus as the Messiah. That was the first witness. Here's another witness. Jesus' miracles also testified of his deity. Verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You know, it's revealing that though the modern scholars have had a field day casting doubt on the legitimacy of Jesus' miracles, no one alive at the time ever doubted their authenticity. Modern scholars can look back and cast out, but at the time, people who lived at the time, nobody ever questioned whether they were real or not. His enemies said that he worked miracles by sorcery or by demonic power, but they didn't deny, they never denied that the miracles happened. There were too many witnesses. There were too many people who saw the miracles to deny them. In fact, even the Jewish historian Josephus, not a Christian by the way, wrote that Jesus was known as a doer of startling deeds. Jesus says, my my works, my miracles will testify of my deity. Verse 37 highlights a third witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. The Father in heaven testified of Jesus on two occasions, remember. At his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember in both cases, he spoke from heaven and declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus explains why the Jews didn't hear God's voice. He says, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You know, we often ask ourselves, how can we hear God's voice? Here's how you hear God's voice, by hiding his word in your heart. Because his voice will always correspond with his word. So if you hide his word in your heart, you'll be quick to recognize his voice. Notice the fourth witness. It's the Bible, the Scriptures. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The Old Testament is chock full of types and idioms that point to Jesus. Not to mention the over 300 direct prophecies fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. We talked about one this morning. The prophecy from Micah that pinpointed his place of birth. You know, the Jews thought they knew the Scriptures. 
The word search, you search out the scriptures here. It means to sniff out like a hound dog. Some of the scribes, man, they were such thorough sniffers that they had counted every letter in the law. They had counted up every letter and yet they had missed its central theme and its clear teaching. They needed to go back and improve on their sniffer. Jesus says to the Jews in verse 40, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this has been the sad history of the Jews. The Jews have been duped by false prophet after false prophet. From Bar Kokhba in the 2nd century A.D. to Menachem Schneerson in the 1990s. They have just been gullible and they followed false prophets. I love what commentator John Phillips writes. Well, I don't love it, but I mean, it's very insightful. I'm upset by what he says, but it's true. Phillips writes this. The Jews never had a false Christ until they rejected the real Christ. Then they had a whole series of pseudo-messiahs who deceived them by the thousands. That was so true. Jesus says, you do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This has been the, the tragic irony. In verse 44, Jesus asks, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Here's the fifth witness, Moses, in whom you trust. For you believed Moses. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For Moses wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses and his messianic prophecies are the fifth witness that brought testimony to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses spoke of Jesus, a prophet like him, he says. The Jews cherished Moses. And yet here Jesus is saying, Moses is going to stand up in the day of judgment and condemn you for not recognizing the one of whom Moses wrote. So, here is the five-fold witness of Jesus, his deity, here in John chapter 5. John the Baptist, Jesus' own miracles, the Father in heaven, the Scriptures, and Moses. And there we have John chapter 4 and 5. Now next week, 